Well, good morning, Snowden Baptist Church. It is so good to be with you on another Sunday. This is really one of the, well, probably is the high point of my week, is gathering with God's people to sing together, pray together, open the word together. Uh, It's always just a joy. Let's pray uh, before we jump back in with both feet to this little letter of 1 Peter. Would you bow your head with me and let's pray together. Father, in Psalm 119, your word uh, speaks about delighting in your testimonies, meditating on your Torah day and night. And my prayer, Lord, for the people of Snowden is ongoing, that you would deepen us as people of the word, that you would cause perhaps fresh hunger uh, to bubble up from our hearts and in our minds for your word. Uh, that we would be people who would pray without ceasing as we are continually running back to your word to spend time with you there. Lord, this is the deposit of your truth. This is the place that you have revealed yourself, your son. You have revealed our hearts for what they are, and you have revealed your plans and purposes for all of history. Uh, Father, continue to give us a rich hunger for your word is my prayer this morning. And as we go back now into First Peter, uh, to behold this side of the diamond that is your word, that you would come by your Holy Spirit and encourage us, bless us, challenge us. Lord, whatever your work is this morning that you would like to do in each of our lives, would you do it? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. William Miller was born in 1782, and William Miller spent most of his life in upstate New York, in fact, uh, over by the border of Vermont. As a young man, William Miller had fought in the War of 1812, and in the years that followed that war, he came back to the Baptist heritage of his childhood, and it was during those years of his life as a Baptist layperson that Miller became particularly fascinated with the books of Daniel and Revelation, leading him eventually to construct his timeline of history where he claimed he could predict when Christ would return. Miller ended up publishing his conclusions about the end of time in tracts and in church newsletters and in other independent religious publications. Miller also began a speaking circuit, speaking about his conclusions to packed out churches and in meeting halls so that eventually he gained a following of thousands of people. By some estimates, about 50,000 people became known as the Millerites. These were adherents to Miller's claims and his arguments. The Millerites became absolutely convinced that the second coming of Jesus Christ would happen at some point between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. But of course it didn't happen And so the date of Christ's return was then revised. First to April 3rd, 1844, and then again to April 18th, 1844. 
And then finally, in August of that same year, a Millerite minister named Samuel Snow published a revised final revision of the timeline claiming October 22nd, 1844, as the date of Christ's return. Now, of course, it didn't happen on that revised date. And the aftermath for the Millerites was a period of profound disappointment. In fact, it's been called the Great Disappointment. And it's expressed well by one of the Millerite adherents who wrote the following words. He said this, quote, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawned. The great disappointment. And now, friends, what I want us to focus on here is how the Millerites responded prior to that October 22nd date. How they acted in the days before that revised date of October 22nd, 1844. Sensing with fervency that the end was nigh. Anticipating that Christ would indeed come back on October 22nd, 1844. Many of these people simply abandoned their fields, left them unharvested. Other Millerites sold their land altogether and or quit their jobs. Some moved from the cities out to the mountains and out to the country. Some gave away all that they had, never expecting to need any kind of repayment because in their estimation they would be gone with Jesus on October 22, 1844. The question we want to spend our time with this morning is really this. How do we live, or what do we do, how do we spend our time in light of the sure promise that Jesus will return on some unknown day? Do we move outside Montreal city limits and build a bunker and store food in anticipation of that day? Or do we say something like, well, there's really no point, no point applying for college because Jesus might come back in my second year? <laughs> the question is, this morning, how do we respond? How do we behave in light of the end? That's the question that our next portion of First Peter is going to answer for us. And the answer that God gives us here to our question may surprise some of us a little bit. Let's jump back into the text of 1 Peter. Today we're concentrating our attention on 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11 that John read for us a little earlier. These verses are the closing portion of a long section of the letter that began back at chapter 2 and verse 11. But notice what Peter says as the verse opens. He says, look at it with me, The end of all things is near. The end of all things 
is near. Now we note first here that Peter is comprehensive in his sweep, isn't he? The end of how many things? All things. All things. The end of all things is near. So every single thing in the entire universe, we might say, is affected by the gospel and by Christ's coming into the world. All things are touched. All things are influenced. All things are affected by the cosmic scope of the gospel. The end of all things is near. Now also bear in mind that Peter wrote these words, did he not, about 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is near, written 2,000 years ago. But then after Peter wrote these words, we've had about 200 decades that have come and gone. So maybe, we ask, did, did Peter jump the gun a little in suggesting that the end was near since so much time has passed since he wrote these words? And the answer is no. Peter did not jump the gun. What we need to understand and try to grasp this morning as we read his words here is that in Peter's world, listen, in Peter's thought world, having been reared in Judaism in the first century in the ancient Near East, Peter believed that with the coming into the world of Messiah Jesus, the last days had begun. In other words, the last days for Peter and for the apostles began in the first century when God manifested the kingdom of God in his son, Jesus Christ. For Peter and the apostles, the end, the last days, were inaugurated, they began with the first coming of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. So for Peter to say here, the end of all things is near, this is simply in keeping with his convictions and with his theology. The ultimate end for Peter and for us will be when Jesus returns, when all things are consummated and sin and the devil are finally overthrown and history as we know it will end. The end of all things is near. Since the first century, since the coming into the world of Jesus, we have been living in the last phase before the coming of the end. And so our question again this morning is, how shall we then live? What shall we do with our moments and our time? What shall occupy our time in light of the approaching end. Notice where Peter goes next. He says, Therefore, it's an important word in Scripture. So in other words, since what I just said is true, since the end is near, and then what? Does Peter say here, the end of all things is near, therefore stockpile jugs of water and build a fallout shelter and bolt the door. 
Or does Peter say, the end of all things is near, therefore quit your job and give away all your earthly possessions and forget your plans for college? No. I hope you're looking at the text with me. Instead, what Peter does here, listen, what Peter does here is he gives us sober, spirit-inspired instruction for how to live before Christ's return. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, Christian, tomorrow morning, Monday, and even later this afternoon, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. (laughs) We need to digest this. We need to digest this. Peter calls on us here simply, simply to live out normal New Testament virtues in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Tom Schreiner tells the story of what Martin Luther said when someone asked Luther, well, Luther, what would you do if the end came today? Luther's reply famously was, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. In other words, I'd keep doing normal, everyday stuff because I've been told in Scripture to always be prepared for the end. Peter says here, in light of the end, Christian believer, be clear-minded and be self-controlled. Christ's imminent return should not cause you to go haywire and act irrationally and do the Y2K thing where you go to Walmart and buy them out of all their water jugs and food. No. Keep your head. That's what Peter's saying here. You go about living practically and soberly and with restraint. Be clear-minded and self-controlled, says Peter, so that you can pray. Notice the priority that Peter places here on prayer in light of Christ's return. Peter had learned this in his own life, had he not? Remember that it was Peter himself who had failed to watch and pray while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter learned his lesson. The Spirit taught it to him. Jesus taught it to him. And so here in 1 Peter 4, he puts this priority on prayer where it should be in light of Christ's return. So believer, Christ's coming back. Plant a tree. Pay your taxes. And pray in light of the end. I love Tom Schreiner's comment on verse 7. He says this, quote, The sensible and alert thinking that Peter talks about in this verse is to be used for prayer. The sensible and alert thinking that he talks about is to be used for prayer, for entreating God to act and move in the time that still remains. He says, the realization that God is bringing history to a close should provoke believers, you and I, to depend on him. And this dependence is manifested in prayer. I like that. 
The dependence we have on God is manifested in prayer, for in prayer believers recognize that any good that occurs in this world is due to God's grace. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Verse 8, above all, so notice where he goes, the top of the heap, what does he say? Love each other, how? Deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And we're reminded here of chapter 1, verse 22, where Peter had already said this, have sincere love for your brothers and sisters. Love one another deeply from the heart. Here at 4.8, Peter found it appropriate to repeat the exhortation to love one another deeply because he knew that such deep and earnest love must be, must be, must be absolutely central in the church of Jesus Christ. And Peter speaks here, doesn't he, of the specific character. Notice the specific character of deep, earnest Christian love. He describes what such love really looks like in action here. He says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, I know it's about to get quiet in here. When someone wrongs us, have you ever been really wronged, unjustly wronged? When someone wrongs us, when someone commits some sin against us, Sometimes our tendency might be to use that sin or that wrong that the person has committed against us as a launching pad to bite back at them. I can hear a pin drop. (laughs) Sometimes we prefer to act on, notice I'm saying we because it applies to the preacher as much as anybody else, Sometimes we prefer to act on the hard feelings that have come from some offense. Are you with me? Peter exhorts us here to do the hard thing. How? With the able help of the Holy Spirit of God. To do the hard thing and be cycle breakers. Will you be a cycle breaker this week? The exhortation here is to break the cycle of kicking back at the person who has kicked you. Love covers over a multitude of sins. God exhorts us here as his colony of aliens and exiles living in the last phase before the end. He exhorts us to be forbearing toward the one who is making life difficult for us by his or her wrongdoing. I'm going to leave that there. Verse 9. How do we live in light of the end? God says, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, this is coming straight from the heart of God himself. 
Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. As you anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, here's what you do. You offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, in Peter's day, hospitality amongst Christians was such an important thing because, you see, in those days, of course, there were no church buildings everywhere like there are today. Christians in Peter's time mostly gathered in homes. To have a church meeting meant that somebody had to play host. Peter says here, you do your hosting without grumbling. (laughs) Sometimes I can host. But it's this last part of the verse that challenges me. You know what it's like. Sometimes unexpected guests can show up at 12.30 (laughs) a.m. And it can be a somewhat burdensome thing, right? Sometimes guests might overstay their welcome. (laughs) I remember one time, this isn't in my notes, but April and I were over at a friend's house. They invited us over. And we got talking and we stayed pretty late. And I realized that I was doing a lot of the talking. And then, one by one, the hosts went and took their contacts out and put glasses on. (laughs) Should have been a cue to me to shut up. Sometimes hosting can be a burdensome thing. Sometimes you might feel as if you have too many guests for your small house, right? Offer hospitality to one another, says Peter, and do it without grumbling. All I have to do, when I look at this verse, is to remember the hospitality that Jesus has shown this awkward guest named Brent Dunbar. Verse 10, how do you live in light of the end? Peter says, each one, notice those words, so that's you and that's me, it's the person sitting next to you, each one, every single disciple of Jesus Christ, not just the people that have offices and churches, every disciple of Jesus Christ should use, notice, use, use, I know there are a ton of gifts in this church, should use whatever gift he or she has received. Peter's focus is, you should properly steward Whatever gift you have received, you should put it to use. For what purpose? It's right there in the text. To serve others. To serve others. So so whatever gift or gifts that God has bestowed on you and in you, they have been given not so that you can simply stare into the mirror and sing how great thou art. Rather, God has bestowed His gifts in your life, whatever they are, so that with them you might serve others. Peter says, serve others faithfully, administering God's grace, notice, in its various forms. God's grace in its various forms. We notice here that Peter uses the word grace for the gifts that God gives to people. And these graces, these gifts that God gives to people come in what Peter calls various forms. 
It's like the church is a great big diamond with multiple sides on it, reflecting different colors and different aspects of the beauty of the diamond, various forms. The graces that God gives to people are called graces. Why are they called graces? Because they are given to people apart from any merit in the people that receive them. I'm going to say that again. God's gifts are given to people apart from any merit in the receptor who receives the gift. That's why it's called a grace. And these graces that God gives to people are multifaceted. They take many different forms. To some, God gives the grace or the gift of administration, which I never understand. Because <laughs> I certainly don't have that gift. To others, he gives the gift of speaking. Others are given artistic gifts and abilities. Others are given the gift of being an encourager or being a musician or carpenter or prayer warrior or teacher. The point is that the gifts take various forms. And in fact, when we look at all of the lists in the New Testament of the various gifts that God gives to the church, no one list in the New Testament was meant to be a comprehensive list. The gifts that God gives the church, when they are taken together, they show off the great majesty of the grace of God, while at the same time they build up his church. It's always marvelous to me to see the amazing diversity of gifts that God puts in the people of his church. So what is your gift? What are your gifts? Have you discovered what your gifts are? Have you had another believer come up to you and confirm in you some gift or grace that you appear to have? Are you using the gift or gifts in the service of others in the church? You know, violins that were made by master craftsmen such as Antonio Stradivari in the 17th and 18th century, these, these violins are worth millions of dollars apiece in some cases, and the sound that these instruments produce is incomparably beautiful. A handful of these violins, these rare violins, have survived into 2017, the problem is that the vast majority of professional violinists are not able to afford such instruments. I know what it's like being a starving musician. <laughs> so enter the Stradivari Society of Chicago, which entrusts or loans these rare violins into the hands of the world's most promising violinists. And the violins... I didn't know this until I went to their website. Apparently the violins have to be used. They have to be played. And the more they're played, the better they sound. If they sit without being played, the tone starts to diminish. Why am I telling this story? Because, friends, we need to understand that God has entrusted you with a unique precious, valuable gift or gifts that he wants you to use. He wants to hear the music that you play, as it were, from whatever gift or talent that he has given you. One of the sections of our church covenant has to do with church members discovering their gifts and talents and serving others with those gifts. So again, I ask you, what's your gift? 
Let's discover it together. Uh, if you're not sure, I, I encourage you to come and tra- talk to either myself or to another trusted believer, and let's do the exciting work of discovering our gifts together. Well, in our final verse, verse 11, Peter continues to talk here about gifts that God bestows on the church, but now he switches, notice, to a little discussion of how the gifts are to be used. Notice this, how the gifts are to be used. First of all, he says, if anyone speaks, so if speaking in the church is your gift, then the one who speaks should do it how, Peter? He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Again, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Now, I can tell you, as a preacher in the church who speaks regularly, I always strive, always strive to the best of my fallen but being restored ability to keep my own opinions and my own ideas, my own anecdotes to a minimum while preaching and to stick to the text of Scripture. Where the words of God are found. The speaker in the church, the preacher, the one who brings verbal edification, must absolutely, I would argue, take the responsibility of preaching very seriously and with due reverence, trusting in the authority and the sufficiency, not of his own thoughts, but in the authority and in the sufficiency of the word of God. Are you with me? If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very oracles, the very words of God. That's why I always have notes because I know my tendency. I can sidetrack and rabbit trail and pretty soon we're away from the text. Then Peter continues, if anyone serves, are you a servant of some kind? He or she should do it, how? Oh, with the strength God provides. (laughs) Now, it's interesting here that the word in the original Greek that's translated into English as serves is the word diakoneo. And from the same Greek root, we get our word deacon. Diakoneo, deacon. Deacons are servants. But here in the verse, the application is for anyone who serves, isn't it? If anyone, diakoneo, serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So, if you visit a sick person in the hospital, if you serve that way, if you help out at the church lunch, if you work in the area of ushering, or sound, or music, or Sunday school, or counting, or or what have you. If anyone serves, he or she should do it, should not attempt to do it in one's own strength, but rather should do it with the strength that God provides. Even if you're counting, you should pray, Lord, give me the strength to do this in the strength that you provide. Lord, I'm depending on your strength as I lead music today. Lord, You said you would provide strength to me as I go and visit this sick person in the hospital. Would you provide it today? If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. With the strength God provides. So that, notice where Peter goes next. Ramping up. 
so that uh, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture in how many things? All things. He's back to all things here. In all things, who may be praised? God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You see what church is about? It's all about God being honored and being glorified. And this verse Peter has connected. Notice the verse with me again. He has connected speaking gifts with God. The one who speaks should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And Peter has also connected serving gifts with God. The one serving must do it in God's strength so that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So this is a very God-centered verse to be sure. The gifts that God gives people are to be used always in a God-centered direction, looking toward the praise of God, concerned that God be glorified, always pointing toward God and drawing attention to Him who is worthy of praise. The glory belongs to Him after all, not to the gifted ones who make up the church. And that's how Peter ends here, doesn't he, in verse 11. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. May that always be our song here at Snowden, no matter what we do. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This, this makes me think of Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Well, as we try to wrap this up today, I want to come back for a moment to where we began. William Miller and the Millerites. Selling their fields, closing their shops, moving out of the city because they were convinced that Jesus would return on October 22, 1844. My hope is that we've seen from Scripture today that our mandate... Our mandate in light of the return of Jesus Christ, which could happen at any time. Our mandate for our time prior to his return, prior to the end, is certainly not to do what the Millerites did, and more recently what some adherents of Harold Camping did, uh, prior to the false date that they had set for Christ's return, May 21st, 2011. We are not to quit our jobs, cancel our plans for the future, live in bunkers and wait for him to come back. Rather, God has told us, hasn't he, through the Apostle Peter, we are to be clear-minded and self-controlled in light of the end. We are to love each other fiercely in light of the return of Jesus Christ and to be hospitable to one another and to steward the gifts that God has given to his church, steward them well. Use your gifts for the glory of God in light of the end. This is the plan of God for us as we live near the end of all things. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us obey. Father in heaven, we give you so much thanks this morning for this word that we have entered into and journeyed through this morning. 
We thank you for instructing us as you have, instructing us in ways that would bring glory to your name and that would bring benefit to our lives. We pray, Lord God, this week nothing less than the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers to live out these commands. Lord, there is so much static and noise from media and the world all around us that would discourage us from being clear-minded. We pray, dear God, that our time would be spent this week praying without ceasing, being in your word, even as we go and converse with others. May we, uh, as Charles Spurgeon once said, Lord, if they cut us, may we bleed Bible. And Father, may we uh, be ambassadors as aliens and exiles in this world, ambassadors of your hope and your reconciliation to those around us. We pray that you would open up conversations with work workers that work around us, with family members, uh, that you would embolden us to speak truth, dear God, to speak it in love. And we pray, Lord, for nothing less than family members and co-workers to be drawn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, to see his glory and his beauty, to fall at his feet in worship and trust him as Lord and Savior. We pray this with simple childlike faith. We tend to complicate it too much sometimes, Lord. Forgive us. Go with us in power by the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.